Welcome to the Secular Dharma Foundation podcast. These episodes are available at no cost on multiple streaming services. The podcast is intended to provide an open dialogue inviting a wide range of perspectives to subjects related to secular issues that align with our mission. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. All right. Good morning, Mirabai. It's good to see you again. Good morning. Happy to be with you. Yes, I know we talked many years ago, and uh, it's good to be to be have you on the podcast. So I'm going to ask you a question I asked Joseph a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, when you look at the popularity of things like meditation and mindfulness and even insight, Vipassana, when you guys went to India in the 60s and came back to the States after doing these Goenka retreats, I would imagine you did not even imagine in your wildest dreams that it would have reached a level of popularity that it has. Absolutely true. <laughs> we had no idea. But what we did know, a whole number of us who explored these practices for the first time in the first retreat that Goenka had ever taught for Westerners, what we did know is how profoundly it affected us mm-hmm. and how how it just changed our way of knowing the world and being in the world and knowing ourselves. And that just seemed so extraordinary that we just wanted to share it with other people. Um, we didn't have any ambitious goals about how many people we would reach. Um, and we didn't really need them because as soon as we started teaching, you know, I would say little by little, but it was faster than that. Other people, you know, saw that they could benefit and um, and did. And we had stayed in India long enough that, you know, a couple of years that um, we had a number of us had learned it well enough to at least begin to teach. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, the basics aren't that complicated, right? And one thing that you said, I was listening to your uh, On Being podcast from 2015 yesterday. It was really great, mm-hmm. by the way. And um, one of the things that you mentioned that kind of sparked this question I like to ask people is, you know, you went over there to India in search of something, in search of meaning, in search for whatever. And really, you mentioned something about just like you've been looking outside, you've been reading all these books, you've been looking in the external world for some kind of answer, some kind of solution. And then you immediately had to realize that you actually had to turn the other way and you looked inside your own mind. And I would imagine for most of you, that must have been the the profound experience of like, I had no idea that I could even look into my mind. Exactly. I mean, as you know, I was a student of literature, so I had read authors, always external. And the idea of just sitting and looking in my own mind in silence that I would, that I could learn from that about the nature of reality. (laughs) That was really incredible. And it seemed like this amazing gift, you know, um, that, uh, that was, I mean, that's not all you need to do. You, You need to then experience that, those, that truth by living it out in the world. But wow, how amazing, how much you can learn just from watching the mind. Well, that's the thing that I've watched for years, teaching meditation in in different places, definitely in prisons and and youth detention centers and and drug addiction centers. Is like, I'm always watching for that moment. And I don't think, you know, it's interesting because sometimes people get it in the first, I know for me, when I started practicing with Stephen Smith in the early nineties, I got it within the first five minutes. You know, that profound shift of like, oh, my God, I had no idea that, you know, and and, and it's one thing I like about it. It's like when you see that happen for people, I think there's almost an immediate enthusiasm people have for the practice when they get that that sense. And it can happen literally in the first five minutes. Absolutely. And and as you say, teaching in context like that, it's amazing that it's so universal that it as i've taught everybody from uh corporate executives to the army to all kinds of folks and i was thinking that one of the one group that i thought would be least likely 
to respond in the way that we had were um, one time George Mumford and I, George is a, a passionate teacher also, and we went, we were invited to um, teach ex-gang leaders who were also ex-cons in Chicago. And they, these guys were tough and beautiful. And um, mm. <laughs> anyhow, I won't go into the whole story, but, you know, we taught them practice and they loved it. They were so grateful. Yeah. So it, it really is a human practice, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. really. Um, if it's taught, if it's, if it's taught with the context created appropriately for whatever group you're working with, then these basic simple practices really work for everybody. It's amazing. The other thing you mentioned in that interview, this word that I liked you use called, you said that one of the things that you developed quickly was what you called a radical self-confidence. Uh, I'd love to hear you say more about what, what that is and what it was like to live before without it. <laughs> well, I had always felt, especially um, being in school so long, I was in the fourth year of my PhD, you know, you're never quite enough. There's always more you need to learn. There are always people who could write a better dissertation than you, you know, and, and so on. And um, just, uh, also, I think I had a, a particular narrative for my own life. My father left when I was seven, somehow or other I caused that. Of course I didn't. But but I was always trying to be better than I was to get good grades. Mm -hmm. I just realized, yeah, it was that I could get good at watching my breath. It was more like um, being say, but being one with it, you know, there was nothing else to do. I could, I was, um, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, I was perfect just the way I was. And I could use a little improvement, <laughs> but I could hold all that at once. Yeah. And, um, and, and that, I, I recognize that that's just who I was and should be at that moment. And that gave me a sense of being in the world like being more at home hmm. on the planet. That must have cooled down a lot of, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It sounds like it must have cooled down a lot of narrative or maybe hyper cognitive stuff you had about trying to fit in and do well and get and achieve and that kind of basically the American way, you know, kind of seemed like that it, it, it cooled yeah. that off and that it did it kind of stay cooled off or was it just kind of one of those shifts in perspective that you just kind of, carried with you from there? Yeah, I, it, yes, it didn't, I never went back to that feeling of, mm -hmm. I'm never good enough, um, of course, you know, you know, it, there, there would be moments when it would arise, but, but between the practice, and after that, I had a really, in, in, um, remember, you know, then I go back to practice and remember, you know, of course we forget. But, well, um, that's interesting too. That's, yeah, really the, never, that's the primary word for mindfulness, right? Is to remember. And you know that's that, that that I think that's and I think you said that, that sort of the opposite of it. We don't realize it. We think of it's distraction and stuff, but it's forgetfulness. It's like I forget, you know, we forget so much stuff so much of the time that when we remember that kind of experience of where we come from, we come back to that coolness, that kind of basic sense of just being here and it being okay. I think Sharon calls it now the our basic okayness. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, what a gift. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I had that experience. I've been chasing it for 30 years now, but just that initial, you know, that that kind of I'm okay. 
you know, and it's not that profound. It's, you know, to just say that I'm okay is not some big, profound, esoteric, mystical experience, but experientially, oh man, it's just really, it really brings us into our life into a way that we really feel more connected and feel like there's possibilities. Exactly. Exactly. Possibilities. Yes. Mm So I'm going to fast forward a bit here because, uh, you know, with the Secular Dharma Foundation, uh, the work that we do, I think, mimics in many ways what you started in the mid-1990s. And I remember the first time, it's funny, you you brought up Owen earlier before before we started recording. I remember the first time I went to your house, I was with Hanuman, and it was about this time of year. And he said, oh, we're going to walk up to So Mirabai's house and, and meet with Owen. And, and then soon after that, I was at a Christmas party at your house and Joseph was there. This is kind of when I started meeting all you folks. And I was like, wow, like, these are not like my parents' friends. These are not like the people I grew up with. And I think it was probably around that time that you started the Center for Contemplative Mind and Science, C-Mind. What were the conditions or... You know, what was the arising of that? Because I would imagine, as we mentioned earlier, to start a program like that in the mid-early 90s to try to bring these practices into contemporary or secular spaces was, I would imagine, kind of a risky proposition. Very risky. Um, but, um, well, when we first came back from India, um, we all, as I said, wanted to share this thing we had learned. And um, the, most of the others became teachers right away. Um, but I had a child right after I returned, Owen. And, um, and in those days, this is the 70s, um, nobody, uh, nobody could put together in their minds babies and meditation. <laughs> yeah, sure, I get it. I have, I, yeah. Street centers did not allow children to come. Uh, And so um, I couldn't do what the others were doing. And so I, with my uh, husband then, uh, Krishna, who you know, um, started a business called Illuminations. And, but, and we, I, I felt from the beginning that if these practices were really important to our lives, that we ought to be able to wake up, not just when we run the cushion, but through everything that we do. So you need to do the practice on the cushion, but then you learn from how it's applied in life. So I began by um, uh, bringing that awareness and practices and so on into running a business for 10 or so years. And um, right. And then, and then after that, I worked with others on a on Seva, a, a public health foundation. Um, and so, by the mid '90s, um, a group of us had put on a retreat for social activists, and um, Joseph was the teacher, Joseph and Ramdas, and. Uh, and we brought together a hundred social activists, and um, it was our first time to um, to introduce it to a group of people we had invited in, um, rather than people who would go to a retreat center looking for themselves individually. And that was a very powerful retreat. We learned a lot. We made a lot of mistakes, and we learned a lot from it. But um, out of that. Then a number of us started talking about the, the relationship between practices and social action and uh, work in the world about uh, what the Hindus call karma yoga um, or what Buddhists often call right livelihood sure. or just essentially waking up from from what you do all day. And um, so um, we, a small group of us decided we would try uh, John Kabat-Zinn had been working in health and healing till, yeah. till then. And uh, that was the only one we knew who was doing any work inside organizations. But having introduced it into two organizations myself, I saw like what a profound difference it made. So um, we decided we would try. And what made it a little bit, it was still a Dharma risk, but what made it a little less of an organizational risk was 
So we had some money to start. And, uh, and then we, um, it took a lot because no, no one had thought of doing this. And um, so we had to, we had to find people inside these organizations who were open to it, or at least open to us, you know. And then, um, uh, then in each case, we needed to um, adapt it, not the practices. It's really important that the practices retain their integrity from the way they've been traditionally taught. But we had to frame them differently and um, make sure we had teachers who could do that in different settings. And we worked, we worked in business, in uh, we worked with lawyers and judges and law students, with scientists, uh, philanthropists, and a big program in higher education. Wow. With the army, and uh, we did a big program that you probably know about at Google called "Search Inside Yourself." Totally, yeah. Funny. I want to talk about that in a little bit, yeah. but I, I definitely want to hear about uh, both because that's very interesting to me. What were some of the mistakes? You know, you said you kind of made some. What were some? Because it sounds like you guys learned a lot in those early ones of sort of like what not to do or what didn't work. And it sounds like what you're saying in, in framing. Uh, what are the one of the, the tensions I, I suspect you found was actually it was a bit of a matter of terminology that you were using. Yeah, that for sure. Um, so, um, in the, with that very first retreat we did for the social activists, um, we had a lot of uh, learning to do about um, uh, cultural awareness, diversity, and so on. There were activists, about half, there were 100 people, about half of them were people of color. And um, we we designed, we, we only had, in the beginning, we only had the model of the monastic course. The yeah, you had the sort of classic Vipassana retreat model, that was it, right? And so a small group of us got together, we planned this thing, we invited these people to come, and then um, we started teaching it. And um, the first two nights, um, and none of these people had done anything like this before. And the first two nights, uh, white men stood up and said, you know, this is the nature of spirituality and reality. <laughs> and this is how you you get there, you know. <laughs> and that was Ramdas and Joseph. And um, at that retreat, there was then a revolution. Like everybody said, we can't do this anymore. So then we sat in a wow. circle for most of the week, um, learning, like we had fish bowls and we, people, what we really learned out of that was if you're planning, when you're planning for a group, members of that group have to be included in the planning. You, there's no way you can get it right unless constituents or however you say it, um, are, are engaged and involved. Um, and then of course we learned a lot of things about, um, about the, uh, the white privilege embedded in Dharma teaching at that time. And so wow. on. Um, but that's yeah. really coming to light nowadays, but it sounds like you guys were poking around on it 20 years ago. It was 91 when we did that. Yeah. Where'd you do that um, retreat? Uh, we did it at a Salvation Army Wow. Center, which is quite nice in, I think it was in Sharon, Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I don't know. We found it. Actually, yeah. we found it and we were doing a meditation retreat and uh, it's second day, they wanted to throw us out because they, their understanding of meditation is reading the Bible in silence. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was ours. Um, so, uh, so that first yeah, retreat must have kind of later. It must have kind of felt like it was coming off the rails a little bit the first time through. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but what saved it? I would say what saved it, and Joseph is such a, a model of this, is that those folks 
who had done the planning, who were practitioners, they really knew how to listen. And they really listened. And, you know, so many activists have been in so many settings where nobody listens. Right. And, uh, like, they really listened. And then we shifted and changed uh, the retreat. And it ended up being really quite successful. It's a bigger story, but, I mean, that's yeah. the... But then you create, uh, but but in that learning process, you probably created a model for the next one and a model for the next one. And, right. and so... In, in all of those other sectors, we always brought in um, the, the few people we knew to get started to talk to us about uh, how to teach it in that setting. Yeah. And we, we couldn't, I mean, it was a dialogue. We couldn't always accept everything. Like uh, the Yale law professors we worked with for the first law retreat wanted uh, wanted to require um readings of plato during the retreat oh my god <laughs> we said we didn't think that so well <laughs> so it was just um in each place yeah we learned different things <laughs> yeah no that's amazing and you did that for quite many years so you were and did you notice were there some universal themes that you noticed kind of worked in different environments, like there were things that you could kind of bring into, did you start to capture like, okay, there's some universal themes that we can bring into all this stuff that seems to work for everybody? Well, yeah, I mean, we would of course talk about how, um, stress, which is of course important, but, yeah. um, that also that they can, you know, help you uh, increase clarity of mind, therefore allowing you to see things in a different way and to see many possibilities, as you said, um, which, of course, um, relates to creativity, which is um, and also that um, how the practices can um, increase our understanding and appreciation of each other. And so that whole domain of being able to, to uh, communicate more effectively and let go of prejudgments about others. At one point, um, a group of judges asked us to do a special retreat for them on how to be non-judgmental. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good, and, good on them, though. Good on them to have the insight to want to do that retreat. Yeah. Well, they said that, you know, they're so overloaded and that one person after another comes in front of them and that they found it so difficult not to just presume, prejudge by what a person looked like, how old he was, like what race he was. And, you know, they said they found them, once they started looking at their minds, they found that they were doing that all the time and they didn't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the first things. we. I remember sitting at IMS in the 90s and Joseph doing a talk on the hindrances and talking about judging. And I thought he, I thought he was talking about me because we had, <laughs> had a meeting that day. I was like, this guy's outing me to everybody in the hall. I didn't realize that everybody <laughs> is doing this all of the time. You know, there's that, uni that universalness of, of the mind. And I would imagine, so in terminology, I noticed you talked about it with Kristen about, you know, not saying the L word, don't say love, don't say Buddha. Yeah, you know, yeah. Is that there's, there's ways in which, um, and the Buddha said this actually, right, in the Pali Discourse is like, you need to speak to people in the language that they'll actually understand. Yeah. Now we got, um, we... We had to balance it. We were very cautious about mentioning the Buddha or saying this was Buddhist in the beginning. And then actually it was as Yale law students who were all so smart and so on the edge of everything. And so um, they, uh, you know, accused us of, of um, appropriation because we weren't honoring the Buddha. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, what's so, the appropriate, uh, what's the dosage of Buddhism that you can use that will not rattle people's cage? But we did find that, you know, that we were able to say these practices came from um, Buddhism, but also in the center, we were doing other things as well. We had a big research project on the contemplative in 
all spiritual and religious traditions and every tradition has something that uh, that cultivates mindfulness they don't call it that sure but um uh and so we were able to then uh and sometimes we would bring in um you know teachers from different traditions and and uh, do a kind of mixed retreat like that um and so because we knew that these were I used to always say human practices, you know, that in every every tradition, something, some way of, you know, calming, quieting, getting more clear, being able to see things as they are, and then acting out of compassion and kindness exists in every tradition. Okay. Sometimes people pop into my screen by accident. I should lock it. I forgot to lock it at the beginning. Um, Let me write this down. So also one thing I want to just highlight here that was probably part of it is one thing I noticed that's kind of interesting when you look at y'all who went back over there, you know, some people came back to after the Goinka retreats and back to the States and kind of went, you know, Joseph started IMS and Sharon and Jack and they became Dharma teachers. But then you had this other group of people who got into the science, Richard Davidson, Danny Goleman, you know, and mm-hmm. so that there was a way it sounds like you maybe uh, with, with the work you're doing at C-Mind were kind of sitting in the middle of that. Were you also getting help from Danny and the Richards and the people who were looking at it scientifically in a way to kind of blend these things together? Because that's kind of where I kind of consider, consider myself a second generation teacher. And that's kind of what I ended up doing because I mm-hmm. knew everybody in, in those spaces. Was was that part of the conversation? And was there was there tension and all that? Or how did you negotiate that? I would imagine that was a interesting space. Well... As, as you said, we all started out together, kind of, and the seed pod for it in this country was um, when we came back from India, a number of us lived in Cambridge at the home of David McClellan, who was the head of this social psychology department at Harvard at the time. Danny was his student, so was Richie, and so was Cliff Sarin. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and they asked a number of us to live in their big old Victoria as kids and uh, so we were all um, it was an amazing time every night David would come home from Harvard for and be at the head of this table for dinner and we'd have these conversations and David was the, just amazing um, very professorial and he would he'd ask questions like, uh, I think these practices could um, have an effect on the immune system, you know, and then everybody would like to talk about that. But wow. of course, then that went into a whole uh, area of research. And um, yeah, so we all knew each other well and respected each other so that um, I, I don't really remember any tension. Sure. Um, we the were the. Uh, Richie was uh, out front on the research at Wisconsin, and that really, when it started, that was like started to come out also in like the later 90s. Um, when it started being published, that was really helpful for us going into secular settings and explain and showing what the research in the beginning was showing. Well, because that's know, kind of the uh, religion in America, is science and research. That's what people like, so that helps. Exactly. Now, I'm curious if she was part of it, because I have a friend of mine, you probably know of her at least, Joan Bersanko, and she always talks about yeah. David McClelland, actually. Was she in those groups with you guys? Was she around at that time? Because I know well, her from my clinical work, and she mentions, when she does public lectures, she always mentions David McClelland. I always, in my mind, I always said, I wonder if that's the same guy, and it must have been. Yeah, must have been. She probably studied with him. She she wasn't. I don't remember her being there when I was there, but she probably studied with him. Yeah. yeah. So he was a big, kind of important person in the mix that maybe doesn't get doesn't get spoken about as much. Yeah, he was, and uh, yeah, and he also used to invite amazing people to come to these dinners, and so um, uh, any kind of visiting spiritual leader would come and Chogun Trungpa was there a lot. A wow. Great. 
Tibetan teacher, and Octavio Paz, who was had been the Mexican ambassador to India and was a great poet, wrote about Hanuman. Um, he would come. I did all kinds of people, uh, and so it kept the the uh, conversation was very wide ranging. Yeah, I wish I had some recordings of some of those meetings. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, now, nowadays all that stuff gets captured yeah. yeah so so this was going on early on this so this must have been in what the 70s and the early 80s or even the 70s these dinners yes yes yeah yeah and in in those days buddhists they've been siloed <laughs> until then uh, they didn't, hadn't really met people outside their tradition. And there was one time at our house, at his house where we all lived, um, uh, when um, uh, Kalu Rinpoche, who is a great Tibetan master, a teacher of the Dalai Lamas, um, met, um, met with Song Sunim, who was Johnny Kabat-Zinn's teacher, who is uh, Korean Zen. And they met for the first time. And you you may know this story. Jack tells it all the time. I'll just have it very quickly. Um, Sung Sunim, in, in his Zen uh, approach, said, held up an orange and said to Kalu, what is this? <laughs> you know, and, and Kalu said, it's an orange. And then Sung Sunim uh, again said, what is this? <laughs> he said, it's an orange. He did it a third time. And, and Kalu turned to one of us and said, don't they have oranges in Korea? <laughs> yeah, that's classic. Worlds combined. Yeah, so that was really great because you know these other Buddhist traditions don't know about each other until really the modern yeah. times come in. Like yeah. you know, in, in the eighteen hundreds, you know, the, the Tibetan Buddhist practitioners didn't know that they were doing Zen meditation in other countries. They just didn't know. Yeah. So, I want to talk a little bit about that you mentioned earlier because I think it's. Um, I want to talk about the Search Inside Yourself program because I think that's pretty profound in terms of Google um, doing that stuff. And it sounds like uh, some, was it Ming, your friend Ming, who had started it? He was a programmer there and wanted to do it. It sounded like at first nobody was interested. Uh, and so what was the, I think you mentioned the emotional intelligence work, but how did you guys craft the language or the kind of marketing material in a way to get those young, smart people at Google in the room? Well, this is a good a, a good case of um, adapting for the for the um, context. Um, Meng had wanted to uh, introduce meditation to Google. This is a two thousand seven, and um, he so he offered. This is right soon after they'd gone public, and all these young smart engineers got um shares and none of them would have to work for the rest of their lives sure, they were kind of but, set up um, at that point yeah but uh google but they wanted to they loved what they were doing and uh, google told them they could stay and they could work as long as it, had, it contributed in some way to the google mission to so that was easy get all the information in the world available for everyone for right. free so uh uh ming once it, he he grew up in um, in China and wanted to uh, offer meditation, but and so he posted uh, a, um, a mindfulness-based stress reduction course, and uh, and as you know, in every other context by that time, all these different organizations it was being offered, and people loved it. It was, it was a great course. Um, but nobody at Google signed up. Mm -hmm. Why? So Meng had heard about me and called me and uh, here in Northampton and told me his problem. And um, so the next time I was in California, I went over there and uh, kind of looked around to see what was going on and why they might not have signed up. And it turned out, of course, especially then, this is you know, some time ago at Google. They were almost all young. They were all um, mostly Asian and um, and white young male engineers. Uh, and they had 
all been in front of their screens from day Ever. one, their lives, you know. And so they were they were high achievers, um, but they were really good at algorithms that now they were starting to have to work in teams and it was really hard for them. Yeah. So, so they um so and we asked around why didn't they why didn't they sign up for stress reduction and they said things like um i um oh i was i got to the top of my class at stanford uh, with stress and so i think stress is a good thing oh boy yeah or uh we we have the best job in the country it, it had just gotten that award um so how could I possibly be stressed? Uh-huh. So I don't need to reduce it. Or I know I'm stressed, but it's not cool to be stressed. So I'm not going to take a stress reduction course. Like this is the first time that at all reason. Like, <laughs> that's so ridiculous, too, isn't it? But um, that's what that's the way it was. So what to do? And what we realized that they needed was, um, you know, were more uh, courses around, um, well, compassion, kindness, communication, um, and, um, you know, reducing uh, prejudgments, all of those um, that go, that are after the initial work around mindfulness and so on. So um, we... And it was by that time, the emotional intelligence research was well developed and, and, and everybody knew in business that, you know, the more emotionally intelligent you were, the more successful you could be. Right. So um, we, um, we designed a course that was um, in some ways in the beginning, like John's course of introducing mindfulness and so on. And then, uh, we added uh, really basic compassion, loving kindness practices, a great practice we developed for there called Just Like Me that mm-hmm. you do in and you recognize uh, that the other person is in so many ways just like you. And uh, then we also did mindful listening, communication, and um, <laughs> we even did uh, mindful emailing. Wow. Uh, which Oprah picked up one time and did an article about. Uh, And uh, now it would be texting, I'm sure. But um, anyhow, it, and, but then we still needed to sell it or market it. And um, so I asked Danny if he would come and give a Google talk. He said, I'm not, I'm not working in business anymore. I've done enough of that. I said, oh, Danny, you have to do this. <laughs> you know, this could make such a big difference. Uh, he's such of, a good speaker, too, you know. Oh, yeah. In all of Silicon Valley, at the very least, you know. And so, anyhow, after a few conversations, he agreed. And he came out and he gave the talk. And, like, I don't know, an hour later, 140 people had signed up. And then it went from there. And then um, it... It's a long story, but like now, like tens of thousands of oh, Google have completely taken it. And and we also spun off what well, was first a nonprofit and it's now a G Corp. I, I mean, B Corp. <laughs> um, uh, and that's reached, you know, I know, hundreds of thousands in 50 countries. Yeah. It's amazing. So, yeah, it's interesting. I kind of did the same thing because when you look at, you know, what's the carrot you have to dangle to get people into the room? And and, and I think for, for the most part, I think it's a bit safe to say mindfulness is not that exciting of a word. Yeah. You know, and, but emotional intelligence. Oh, that yeah. sounds good. I want that. Thank you. <laughs> and, and that's what we've done with my program, Mindfulness East, is we kind of come with the emotional intelligence and say, well, if you want the emotional intelligence, it turns out you got to have this mindfulness thing. Mm-hmm. People go, okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, because that that has been, for me, the, and what we're talking about the mindful listening and the, and the, the heart practices and so forth, the, that there's a relational aspect to the practice that I think is really what's kind of needed now, maybe more than ever. Exactly. It's not just me by myself alone looking inside myself, but me being with another person looking inside myself and looking inside and seeing that, oh, there's a common shared humanity here. 
And it yes. seems like that that once that once people got a taste of that, I think when anybody gets a taste of that, they require they they kind of acquire an appetite for it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And um, and so I I taught the first refined and taught the first courses with um, Norman Fisher, mm. who used to be the abbot at uh, San Francisco Zen. And I mean, he's, he's great. Yeah. And so what's really important is as it gets like crafted, framed, marketed, that the core of it retain the essence of the practices and doesn't get, you know, watered down. Like, yeah. you know, the three deep breaths before you pick up the phone or answer the door or something is great, but it's not the whole thing. Right. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you too, because I would imagine, you know, because you guys had such a, and I, one thing I appreciate about you and a lot of your colleagues is you guys have had a, a tremendous fidelity to the tradition, you know, that that seems to be like all the way down the line that has been something that you really haven't been willing to bend, you know? And I think that a lot of us, myself included, have benefited from your lack of willingness to bend that. And so I'm just wondering, like, with, with, especially with secular stuff and in the, in, in the contemporary work, how did you address or did you address, how do you talk about the ethical dimension of the practice in a way that, you know, and maybe ethics is made even a tricky word, what we would call sila. Uh, I would imagine that talking at that or around that is a tricky business. It is, and I would say, the weakness, or if I have any regrets, it is that we didn't find a way to emphasize that more from the beginning. I mean, when I think about, particularly in tech, you know, like we could have um, done something like have circles in which people explore, a, the given what they're learning from the practices, explore what implications that has for product development. And like mm -hmm. one thing was developed, was starting even when we there, were there, was um, facial recognition technology. And you know what happened with that. I mean, they fed in faces of people who looked like them, these engineers. Yeah. And so they, and then when it got used in like in law enforcement, like all black people looked alike. To, to facial, I'm exaggerating. A I know bit. what you mean, and that must have been Ekman's work—the facial action cue stuff that he did. But yeah, but um, there were so many ways in which, um, just um, without laying on, you know, uh, uh, commandments to people, you can we could have encouraged them more to uh, be more aware of the ethical principles that arise out of knowing that we're all interconnected and that everything is changing all the time, mm. uh, that um, to um, see how that plays out in our lives and our work. And I, th I think, I know more work needs to be done and I think it's critical. I think so. that's right. I mean, that's kind of where I sit, you know, inheriting the stuff. And I think one of the ways that we've negotiated that in terms of, and it's tricky, right? Because it, 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 it all of a sudden it turns into commandments and morals and it gets complicated. But, you know, the language that Danny came up with in that Destructive Emotions book around destructive emotions and constructive emotions, I think is, is an easier way to get the conversation going. Um, and it, it, it's something that I actually, it's one of the tensions that I sit with is is how, uh, how important that is uh, and how tricky that is to... Uh, bring into a contemporary secular space and how do we create a, an appetite or really I think one of the things that we talked about this earlier like and this seems to be missing is there's not a great kind of lexicon of terms or a language system that we can use to have that conversation in a meaningful way that doesn't get people's kind of hackle going yeah yeah we have to develop it we we did do um some work with like anger which is bottom line problem in every organization. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, we did some practices of being aware and then doing, we did some physically based practices, you know, where you hold 
you tense up your fist and then you breathing in and out slowly, let go, you know, like that. Some some little practices for them to use in the workplace around yeah. emotions. But yeah, I mean, there's lots more to be done. Yeah. We just broke the ground and planted the first seeds. Well, you did for sure in a very meaningful way. And so in the last little bit here, I'm curious um, about this kind of conversation. You know, somebody who's been in the space for long, looking forward, you know, where this is all going. I'm just curious, in what ways do you feel optimistic about kind of where this contemplative work is going? And some, what are some of the ways in which you maybe feel cautious or kind of, you know, where is it being watered down? I would imagine with all the stuff that's going on in the world, uh, that's kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, well, I mean, the encouraging thing is that so many people want to want to learn it and do it. Um, that's right. That's for sure. And that it can be taught in all these different settings. Um, I think that, um, I mean, I'm more discouraged by what's happening in the world sure. than by the, uh, than what's happened as we were teaching these practices. Um, I do feel that in a lot of settings, people, you know, they start out um, teaching it in a way that really, you know, can offer transformative potential, not just feeling good right but then you know the pressures of the workplace and you know people's resistance to it and so on um you know a lot of people i, I mean even at google we had the um they always had feedback from people who you know they'd be in beta with anything they offered for I something bet they have a boatload and they of get feedback. feedback from everybody yeah yeah, but the feedback was the same kind of feedback we have in our own minds. It's like, um, I, you know, I don't think we should sit for half an hour. Like, my mind can't do that that long. I think we should sit for 10 minutes. You know, yeah. it's like we had a great moment where um, one of the um, uh, Norman and I were teaching. I think it was the first course. We did a day long, and then a week later we did a two-hour. And we said, so what should we do during that well, we said, well, of course, we're going to start by practice, you know, so they get, you know, into it and that everything begins with practice. And um, so he started teaching, you know, close your eyes and watch your breath. And immediately a hand shoots up. Someone, uh, oh, yes, what is it? <laughs> we learned that last week. Oh, my God. <laughs> So then well, we they weren't wrong. <laughs> we had to integrate a talk on like why it's called practice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so, one thing that, that you also mentioned, and I think to go back to the beginning of your kind of unshakable kind of confidence is what you call, I think, a, a sane faith. Uh, and, and the one thing that I kind of, whether it's true or not, I choose to believe it, that with, with the stuff that's going on in the world and the commodification of mindfulness, and people get all worked up about it, I just feel at the end of the day, the Dharma is going to sort it all out. And that, you know, those people who get into the practice and they start to get serious about it are just going to, they're going to fall into the same pond that we all fell into. Yeah. And, and, I, and I found that to be the case with people, that once people give it a sincere attempt, then the ethical dimension becomes actually quite easy to negotiate. And I, I don't, I don't, so that's, that's kind of whether that's delusional or not, I find that gets me through the day much of the time of like, you know, there are powers at play here that are way stronger than any of us. And I, yeah. I feel like that, that's sort of what happens is that it, the Dharma will sort of sort it out for us. Yeah. Uh, um, Ulakana in Burma. Did you ever sit in Burma? I forget. No, I never have. But um, anyhow, he used to say, let the Dharma do it. I thought that was a good bumper sticker. But yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but it's a combination. We have to do everything we know to do to relieve suffering in this world through teaching Dharma or whatever we're doing. Yeah. And at the same time, knowing that it's unfolding exactly as it should and that what you're saying is true, also true. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's not just that we sit back and don't do anything and let the Dharma do it by itself. The Dharma right. needs us, you know, so. It's that relationship. Yeah. 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 And awesome. it's so hard right now. And I guess it just, 
I mean, it was, it's been really interesting to see even people who practice for a long time, wise people of all kinds have really been struggling with how, how to speak about what's going on and, um, you know, how to be with it and certainly how to like make it better. Um, yeah. A lot more work to do. We do. And one of the books actually that really helped me with this conversation, and I'm surprised it doesn't get more airtime because it was written by the Dalai Lama, his book Beyond Religion, his book on secular ethics, which is such a great book. You know, and I used to get over when I had I've had compassion fatigue syndrome twice, and I've been burned out many times in this space. And, you know, I think you know, going into these addiction treatment centers, going into environments where you're like, oh my God, this is a nightmare. This is never going to get any better. You know, and it's like, you know, the, the one person at a time that that I took that message to heart years ago. And I was like, you know what, just just work with the person who's in front of you. You know, we're probably not going to change these, all these massive political social systems that are a nightmare, you know, to try to change, to, to try to push that, to try to become Sisyphus and push that boulder up the hill. But but working with the people who are in front of you. Uh, yeah. seems to be kind of the strategy that has been the most most helpful for me in the last couple of years. And I have found that there's always somebody there. You just open yeah. around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're at the checkout line at the grocery store. There's somebody there who's maybe having a hard time. You could be kind to them. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So is there anything you want to say before we go? Like is anything that's coming up that you're doing that you're looking forward to or anything that you're excited about and when well, in this, in this space? Well, I am, um, I'm mostly writing right now. And, um, and I, I would just like to say that um, reflection, I mean, practice is, you know, quieting, opening the mind, but, Reflection on your life turns out to be a really good use of that of that open mind. And so, you know, I have a long life to look back over. And at first I was kind of doing it because I have a granddaughter and I thought mm -hmm. I'd love her to know the story. And then I've had a lot of students who said, oh, you got to tell your stories, you know, about all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But really what I found is that it's a good thing to do, but it, as a practice, it's really powerful. Looking back and see the ways in which you have created a narrative for yourself and you've been telling it to other people and telling it to yourself all this time. And I was able to go back into like old journals and letters, pictures and, you know, and it was like, oh, that's not quite the way it was, Mirabai. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> let's get a little, little more clear about this yeah. one. Um, and uh, it's a great practice. Yeah. So um, at any time in life. Yeah. Well, listen, Mirabai, that's our time. I thank you so much for your time today. It's always lovely to see you. And uh, I'll, when, we, when this goes up, I will send you a link and so forth. And, and keep in touch. I really want to hear how you do it.